0: Silence can be good, and silence can be bad. We live in a culture that often has an aversion to silence. We always have some noise in our life, whether that be the people around us, the radio, uh, the TV, Uh, there's always some noise being generated in our lives. Very often, if you consider your day from morning to evening, the only real silence might be when you turn off the radio in the car or when you're preparing yourself to go to bed. We are accustomed to having noise all around us, and even in a gathering like this, silence can feel weird and awkward. Often intentionally, I will Uh, withhold before a prayer and allow there be a moment of silence. Because we live in a culture that is so often inundated with noise, always having to hear something, some talking head on the TV or some joker on the radio, someone always telling us something or informing us in some way, maybe even talking to ourselves. We never stop And are silent. But sometimes silence can be bad. Sometimes silence is really negative. For example, if the Lord has given you a word of encouragement, but you remain silent in sharing it. Or a word of rebuke. A word of correction. You you have a word of correction, but you... You're too afraid to open your mouth and openly share that word of correction. Silence can be good, but silence can also be bad. But there's another kind of bad silence that is often too prevalent in our own lives. Because we live in a culture that's inundated with noise and sound... Because we're often always wanting to hear and be informed, we never take the opportunity to praise God. We often have a wrong understanding of what it means to praise God. We've equated it, it must be a song, right? We praise God through through song. And so it must be singing. Or praising God only happens, you know, once a week, right now, right, during this gathering. That's when praising happens. But beyond our own lives, the lack of praise, the lack of us praising God, often, excuse me, also is throughout the whole world. As we often quote that just very helpful sort of little quote, little section in a a book called Let the Nations Be Glad, and just encourage you if you're not like reading, I encourage you to read, right, that whatever your age is, learn to read. Uh, that's a gift uh, from the Lord uh, that he gave you because there are people across this globe that can't read. And so if God has given you that gift and you can open, open a book and read it, well, if you can only read one page a day, then read. And I want you to encourage you this summer to read one book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. And in that book, John Piper, Let the Nations Be Glad, John says this. He he says, you know, the purpose of the church is not missions. That's how how we often talk about it, right? The the, the mission of the church, missions, taking the gospel to the nations. No, 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 that's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church is worship. 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 And missions, Piper says, exists because worship does not exist. Because there is a lack of praising of God, a a silence among the nations. A people praising God, worshiping Him. That's why missions exist. That's why we take the gospel to the nations. Is because there is a silence that is bad. People that do not praise God. The name of God. Friends, that's what we want to think about together this morning. About how God has invited us to praise Him. Invited us to praise Him because of who He is, and how that propels us to take the gospel to the nations. Well, we're going to come and consider the shortest book in all the Bible, the shortest chapter with the shortest amount of verses. In the whole Bible. And so, if you're into memorizing whole books of the Bible, like, like me, uh, you can commit this one to memory and feel you've done something. Uh, great. I invite you to turn this morning to Psalm 117. Psalm, Psalm 117. It's page 511 in one of those black Pew Bibles in front of you. And invite you to open it up, leave it open. Uh, friend, if you're gathering with us this morning, uh, my hope for you is for you to hear God and not me. Uh, These people are not sitting and me standing because I have something great to say. Rather, I hope for you to hear God and his word clearly and so have it open before you this morning. Uh, We come to one of the smallest books, the smallest chapters, but a We must not conclude because it's short, it doesn't have a a big message. Rather, this is a small book or a small chapter with a big message. There's a huge message, and and I just invite you, because it's so short and you can not feel intimidated by it, spend some time with it this week. Think about it. Uh, Its message is so profound, it will transform your life and the world around you. It's so big that Sir, that Spurgeon, when commenting on this psalm, said that this psalm, which is very little in letter, is exceedingly large in spirit, for bursting all bounds of race or nationality, it calls upon all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the of the 15th century, uh, he he loved this psalm so much he wrote a 36 page commentary on this one psalm. That's right. Right, eighteen verses for each eighteen pages for each verse, right? So this is an important psalm. This psalm was used in the life of, of the Israelites in their time of celebration during the Passover. It's a series of Psalms beginning in Psalm 13, 113. So if you have your Bibles, you can just look over Psalm 113, all the way down through Psalm 118. Uh, this is this is a part of the Halel a series of psalms that that call God's people to hallelujah. Every one of them in in the ESV ends with praise the Lord or hallelujah to the Lord. These are the hallelujah hymns, right? You know, the hallelujah songs. Uh, That's what these were. These were the hallelujah psalms that they would sing and they would recite these. These are the very words that Jesus used with his disciples, the very psalms, the songs that he would sing with his disciples. If you remember there before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Lord's Supper, Uh, Mark and Matthew tell us that they sung a hymn as they made their way to the Mount of Olives. Well, brothers and sisters, it would have probably been this hymn. It would have been this hymn in, in Psalm 118. They would have been singing. These would have been the words that night as the Lord broke the bread, as we'll do in a moment at the end of this sermon, when the Lord broke bread and when they drank the cup. These psalms was what was on their mind and in their hearts. This is the words that they were hearing from their Lord. And what they were seeing was that these words were being fulfilled before their very eyes. As the Lord Jesus Christ was fulfilling these psalms in their midst and would come to their completion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when these Israelites sang in faith, they would recall both their privileged position but also the reason for their existence. I'm going to expose a little bit of your bad theology this morning about Israel and the nation of Israel. I hope to show it to you in this psalm. Often in our world today, and this is not a political message about our support for Israel as a nation, I think there's if they're a sovereign nation, they need to have their own, they need to be able to protect themselves and do all those things. But often we wrongly think that those people are saved, and they're not apart from the Jesus apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from calling on the name of Christ they're actually in rebellion against God but the nation of Israel was was created for a purpose as we'll see in this psalm this morning and so let's read it together hear the word of the Lord this morning psalm 117 praise the Lord all nations extol him all peoples For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. See, that's very short. You can do that, and you can memorize that probably by the end of the day today. (laughs) Psalm 117, the point of this passage, and the point, I hope, of the sermon, is that the nature of God propels us to magnify His greatness among the nations. That is, as we meditate on the nature of God, As we understand what God has done in creation for us in the Gospels, we understand who God is, that propels us like fuel to a fire to magnify His greatness among the nations. Uh, You can't stop talking about God when you truly understand who God is when you truly understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ did for you, when you truly understand what Jesus did on Golgotha, when you truly come to understand that, when it really gets, I mean, not just on the surface, but like deep down in in you where you can't shut up about Jesus, right, that's what we're going to think about this morning. That's what I hope to show you this morning. So this psalm really helps us understand understand two big questions. And so I have two questions I hope to ask and answer for you this morning. This morning, first, is who does God desire to worship Him? Who does God desire to worship Him? Who is it that God wants praise from? Who does He want worship from this morning? Who is it that right now, as He sits on His throne in heaven, who does He desire to worship Him? And then, secondly, why should those worship God? Why should we worship God? So who should worship and why should they worship? Those are really what that psalm is driving us towards. So first we see the who, the Lord, is to be magnified among the nations. The Lord is to be magnified among the nations. Notice what he writes. The psalmist says, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. Now remember, this is a psalm written by an Israelite to the Israelites. This was a psalm written by an Israelite. We don't know who. He's unnamed, not, not mentioned. Other places we know who wrote these. In this one, it's unnamed. But it was written by an Israelite to the Israelites. So, so as this book was not printed. You know, It's, it's not like these psalms were available outside of the nation of Israel. And, and so how was it that these people were going to praise Him, these nations were going to praise Him, if the message was limited to only one particular group of people. That's because the message was never supposed to stay with the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was to be a display of God's glory among the nations. And what we find in this first verse is really God's desire that all nations praise Him. It's a universal call to worship God. And so in this psalm, the psalmist is not just merely inviting the Israelites hey, let's go praise God. But rather saying, Israelites, let's gather the nations to praise and worship God. It's a a call to worship, and in our liturgy that we use every week in our congregation, uh, we have the beginning of our worship service. Now, I hope you notice that the announcements, the preparation music, all of that, while it's good and you should listen to it, participate in it, is not a part of the worship service. The worship service doesn't actually begin you know at ten thirty because the clock you know, strikes, it's not until that call to worship is given that the service actually begins, right? And Protestants have been doing this really for well over 500 years to make clear that it's God's Word that calls us to worship Him. It's God in His Word. We don't go to God. You see, the Protestant Reformers wanted to make very clear that we don't go to God. God invites us to come to Him. And so in worship, every Sunday morning, through God's Word, we're inviting worshipers to worship Him, just like this psalm is doing. It's inviting the nations to stand and worship. And the question then becomes... Do I desire that all peoples worship God? Now, a few weeks ago, we dealt with those words, uh, nations and people, the ethne, the, in the Greek, in the Septuagint, it's the taethne, it's the, the, the people groups, all the people groups of the world. And we talked about there's, you know, there's all these people groups and, and there's really thousands of people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ don't have access to the gospel. Uh, they don't have people in their villages or in their towns that are Christians where they might be evangelized. They've never heard. They're not like us we don't, where we have that privilege. But, but, he, but he says not just all nations, all those people, all peoples, every people, person. There's this sort of singularity but universality in what this psalmist is inviting us to this morning. God desires that all nations praise him. And so the question begins for us this morning that we must wrestle with, is is that in my DNA? In my DNA as a follower of Jesus Christ, do I also share the same desire as the one I'm following that all peoples will praise Him? And my question then becomes for you, does your lack of evangelism, your lack of intentionally sharing the gospel with those who do not praise Him defy that truth of your heart this morning. Yes, yes, I believe this passage. Yes, I want all peoples to praise the name of Jesus. Yes, I desire that. But do your lack of evangelism reflect a different desire? The fact that It's been ten years since you've ever told someone about Jesus. Evangelism is a universal call for sinners to worship a holy God. This is what we're doing in evangelism. We're inviting people. Sort of a follow-up question to our lack of evangelism would be, are we selective in our evangelism? That is, do we only evangelize people that look like us and think like us and look like us? Do we truly desire to see that that pilfering drug addict on our corner who annoys us in our community and really we know is destroying? Do we desire for that soul to be saved from hell? Do you desire that That person that wants to run you off the road uh, on the interstate to come to know Jesus? Or do you just want to retaliate against them uh, by running them off the road? Does our our words match our behavior and our actions and our lives? Do we truly, do we just sort of select it? No, I only want certain people to come to know Jesus. People like me. Rather, I want all people to come to know Christ. We heard Nathan read earlier in Psalm 15, Romans 15. Excuse me. Uh, Paul uses this psalm. It, he quotes this psalm in there. You, you would have heard it uh, there. Praise the Lord all nations. Extol Him all peoples. He uses that. He's using that to argue against the division that was present there among the Jews and the Gentiles. He's using that to say, like, look, right here in the Old Testament is where we see there's no longer Jew or Gentile, but one people in Christ. One people. There's no longer one particular nation set above another. He's saying there's going to be one great nation, and that's going to be the church. That's what Paul argues for, that they're now united in Christ. And so this universal call reminds us of the truth that we are united in the gospel of Christ. That's why I, I wanted to be so clear and pray that early. That we would understand that we are one in Christ. There's a union in Christ. That What we want to see reflected in these pews is what's reflected in our community. We live in a very diverse community. And if that diversity doesn't show up here, then perhaps we're not sharing the gospel the way we should. Perhaps we are only sharing the gospel with those that are like us. So we must take the gospel to the nation's. Now I want you to see that this desire of God is that the nations would praise Him. I just want to spend a couple moments thinking about those two words in your Bible. Look with them, me first: praise the Lord, and then secondly, extol Him. Praise the Lord. What what does it mean to praise God? We use that word often in our language in church, right? We don't occasionally use it uh, in our secular lives, but not to the kind of frequency that you hear it here, right? We're always praise God, praise Him. Praise this, right? What does it mean to praise God? Simply, it means to give Him credit. To give God credit, to praise God is to credit Him with everything we have in life, right? All of our abilities, all of our strengths, all of our successes, all of our desires. Is to really, you know, we use that phrase "give credit where credit is due." We we don't really use that with God often, do we? We often think, you know, God, you know, yeah, I'm amazing, I know, I'm cool, I'm great, I can do great things, right? No, give credit where credit is to do. And in this case, in our lives, we recognize that all credit, all credit goes to God. Everything goes to God. So to praise God is is to really uh, give Him credit for everything. And what we recognize is very, there's another P word that runs really close to praise, and that's pride. Because we don't want to praise God. We want to praise ourselves in selfless pride. We want to say like, you know, I did this. I pulled myself up. You know, I made something of myself in my life. I I did this. I overcame this disease. Or I got around this illness. I did this because I have the strength in me. But praising God is reflecting on all that God is doing in our lives. And giving Him the credit. For those things. So how do you do that? Well, first, you need to recognize that praise hopefully doesn't just happen right now in Sunday mornings when you're singing hymns or, or you're or sing, you know, praying prayers of praise or anything like that. We want to understand that this fuels the rest of the week. What happens here should be a reflection of what's happening in your life every week. Every day of every week. And so to praise God means that every act from morning to evening, from sunup to sundown, should be done with a praise towards God. Paul says, you know, everything I do, I do to glorify God. Everything I'm doing in life. So, so we do all things for God's glory. So, you know, when we're washing the dishes at home, that's an opportunity to praise God. A moment ago, the Lord tested my faith, and I wondered how I could find praise in a terrible situation that occurred before the service. But even in that, the Lord caused me to reflect in my heart sinfulness and wrong motives for why I'm here as an opportunity to praise Him. And so in that, you know, praising God isn't just looking at good things. So I encourage you this morning that if you are in the midst of suffering, sorrow, or discouragement this morning, God has brought you that to that point that you might praise Him. You might praise Him. Did you ever figure that God causes you to be weak physically so that He might be strong for you? Our weaknesses reflect His strengths. And so we rest and praise Him. And so this week, as you're out mowing the grass in this scorching heat, do it to the praise of God. That God has given you the life and the ability to do that. The physical ability that you can enjoy. that so many things that you can praise God in your life. Find those things. Lean into those things. Verbalize those things. Let them constantly be rolling in your mind throughout the day. Don't wait until the evening to praise God. Shh, open your mouth and praise Him. Thank Him. Your co-workers might think you're strange, but your God will know your heart. Not only does he desire them to praise, but he uses this other word, extol. It's a strange word, a word we don't often use in our English language. It's kind of falling out of use. Other translations, uh, the Christian Standard Bible uses the word glorify here. It really has this idea of bragging on someone, right? So you, you brag on him, all peoples, right? It's be kind of a, a slang way of saying that, right? The idea is to lift loudly the name of Jesus, right? Look. I love you all, but I, I met half your grandchildren, and you tell me how awesome they are all the time, and, and I believe you. You brag on them all the time, and I love it. It's wonderful, right? Parents brag on their kids, right? You get around parents, right? And they're like, oh, my kid is so awesome. He can do this, and he can do that. And I love it, right? We brag on it. There's nothing wrong on that. Nothing wrong with that at all. We brag on our our grandchildren. We brag on our kids. We brag maybe on our our work or we brag on those things. What this psalm is inviting us to do is to brag on the Lord, to brag on Jesus, to to really get in a a way in our life where, where, look, I cannot not talk about Jesus. I cannot not talk about Jesus. There's there's not a moment in my life where I just, there's, he intersects everything from disciplining my kid to loving my wife, Jesus should be in the center of that. Wesley, in his great hymn, O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, he reflects the reality of what we're feeling in that word extol, to brag on Jesus. Uh, Wesley said, God, if I had a thousand tongues, if you would give me one thousand tongues, give me a thousand of them little things, and I would use every one of them to sing of my great Redeemer's presence. Use every one of His words to to every one of those tongues to sing, to spread throughout all the earth the honors of Thy name. Brothers and sisters, is that true of your life? Brothers and sisters, what a shame it may be that, that the only time you hear the name of Jesus is when someone else speaks it. Let his name, let let the gospel, let his praises be on your lips throughout the week. Friend, do you understand that praising God is a bridge to sharing the gospel? Praising God is a bridge to sharing the gospel. You have your lost friend or family member. You begin to extol, to brag on something God has done. You know, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And God saved me by grace alone and Christ alone. Let me tell you about what God has done in my life. That is what this psalm is doing. It's a way, it's a universal call to invite all people to praise Him. And we see in that, really the second half of this, really why that is. Why the nation should praise? Why should we call sinners to to faith in Christ? Why should we go to the nations? Well, we find it in verse 2. The Lord is to be magnified because of who He is. The reason why God wants His name declared among the nations is because He is worthy to be proclaimed among the nations. Who God is is why we praise. That's what we're praising God about. So every week we have someone re- do a prayer of praise, and and uh, some weeks they do well, some weeks they do poorly, and I correct them, because the prayer of praise isn't a time for us to ask God of anything, uh, not a time really for us to thank God uh, for you know supplies that He's given us and those those things. P- we praise God in that time for who He is. Oh, we want to think about just. Praying. So I want to, I want to encourage you to do a little test of your own prayer life this week. I would encourage you, in, in your prayer time, you, know, you spend five minutes just praising God. See if you can do that. Just, be, just, just time yourself. And you might not make it a minute before you are saying, God, I really need strength right now. Right? There you just turn a prayer of praise into a prayer of petition. You just turn praising God, you know, just talking about how awesome he is, bragging to him, like, God, you're amazing, to God, I need something. You notice our posture is always, I need, I need, rather than you're awesome, you're awesome. But the psalmist here is saying, God is awesome, God is awesome, God is awesome. So what do we learn about God in this psalm? You looked at verse 2, you'll see really two aspects of our God. First, our God is a God of love. And secondly, our God is a God of faithfulness. For great is His steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Great is His faithfulness toward us. I love the New English translation here, the Net Bible. For His loyal love towers over us. Didn't that just really get it in picture form for you? His loyal love towers over us. The Lord is to be magnified among the nations because He is a God of love. How has God shown love for you? How had God shown love to the nation of Israel? He had saved them. He had delivered them from slavery. Before delivering from slavery, he had called Abram out of the earth of the Chaldeans. He had called them out of all of the people, thousands of people that would have stretched the landscape, great people, strong people, noble people. He chooses one person, and he says, I, through you, will save a multitude of millions for my glory. How God showed love for the nation of Israel? While they rebelled against Him for over 400 years, God was patient with them. He loved them through that time. He eventually disciplined them. But even then, He called them back out of exile into a new land. For His own glory, God did these things. How has God shown love toward you in your life? Friends, this is where we begin to understand the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is love. So the next time that ignorant person tells you that the God of the Old Testament isn't a God of love, you can just open to Psalm 117 and show them that no, the God of the Old Testament is a God of love. In that grand passage in Exodus 34, when Moses pleaded with the Lord, Lord, I want to see Your glory. I want to see who You are, what You are like, what are You like. I want to see it, and I want to experience it. And when the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What is our God like? Our God is love. God encapsulates what love is. He defines what love looks like and feels like. And we know the love of God is made clear at the, go- at the cross of Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God proves. He demonstrates it. He shows it. He proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You you see, your problem with the love of God is that you think you're lovable. No, really. Let's be honest. We often think God loves. We, 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 in well-meaning ways, tell people that God loves them. And it is only true that God loves you in Christ. Because apart from Christ Jesus, you are not lovable. Our sin separates us from the love of God. This is why Adam and Eve were not allowed to live with God in the garden. Even after they sinned, that sin had separated them. And so God's love for us is extended through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they're talking about here in this psalm. Is the promises that were made to the nation of Israel that find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So I hope you understand this morning that God's love For us is His nature, not our worth. God's love for you is not based on your worth. This is so messed up in our society on love. We love people who are worthy of love. That's not sacrificial love. Because I'll tell you right now, I bet you some of these, these lovely ladies can testify to a husband that's not lovable sometimes. But that doesn't mean you stop loving them. See, that's where no-fault divorce law got you messed up. Because you thought that love was something that ended when that person was not lovable anymore. Well, thanks be to God that when we were unlovable, God still loved us in the gospel of Christ. So friends, we want to have a biblical understanding of love. We want to understand then that God's love for us is not based on us, but that His love is steadfast toward us. Do you see grace in verse 2? God doesn't just have love towards us, but He has steadfast love towards us. He has love that endures, love that never grows out, never burns out. God's love for you will not get any greater. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of God's love for you. And so that provides us an encouragement. That encourages us this morning that we lift high a God who is steadfast. A God who does not fail us. A God whose embers of love never grow cold. They remain hot forever. We don't serve a God who is fickle or who falls out of love when we screw up and mess up. We have a God who is steadfast with us. And this leads us to that second point here. Our God is a God of faithfulness. Our God is a God who is faithful. And the faithfulness of the Lord, the psalmist tells us, endures forever. Friends, God never gives up. He never gives up on you. Now you may give up on you, you may give up on him, you may want to really give up today. Today you may be weary. Ready to quit. But God will never quit on you. God is kind in that way. He had not given up on the nation of Israel though she had rebelled against Him time and time again, so much that He called her a whore. oh, no, He still loved her and cared for her. This passage provides us such a rich picture of assurance of God's salvation in Christ. That God's love for us is eternal. That we don't have to fear that one day God will say, I just don't love these people anymore. I want to move on to something else. Friend, when you don't feel saved, when you don't feel the presence of God in your life, come to this passage. The truth of this passage should change that mindset. Don't base the Gospel on feelings. On you feeling good, close to God. Or you feeling love. Feelings... Will deceive you. If you doubt that, go ask a teenager whether or not feelings will deceive you. Because we do some really silly things when feelings are involved. And we can think really silly things about God when our feelings are involved. Whether it's the truth of the gospel, and by the way, it's not to diminish feelings, God created us with feelings. My point is, is that the truth should trump our feelings. When God's presence feels distant, we should reassure ourselves with the truth that God's nature is that He is faithful and will never give up. And this is what Jesus reminded His disciples in John 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen Me and not believed. Now listen to this truth. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If you believe in Christ Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is an assurance that He will raise you up. Because you did not arrive at Jesus apart from yourself. Rather, the Spirit of God is the one who brought you to Jesus. As He said in that passage, All that the Father gives me, come to me. And I will cast none of them away. And I will make sure that every one of them gets there that day. What a promise there is that everyone who believes in Christ knows that they will endure to the end. We remind ourselves of this truth in in a hymn we've been learning before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, who perhaps could testify to that truth, that when Satan tempts you to, to despair and he whispers a reminder of the guilt that your sin deserves, upon him I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied. You see, we can say that God is steadfast with sinners because God is satisfied with sinners because He He fulfilled the punishment that they deserve. Friends, this passage offers us great assurance that Assurance that our God is a God of love. That our God is a God of faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, that is the message that we take with us. That we carry with us to the nations. The message that God loves us in the person of Christ. That while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And that He will keep you until the end. That all hell may break loose. Friend, I want you to know that no one can compel you to share the gospel. No sermon. No study. No Sunday school class. Nothing will compel you to take the gospel to the nations until you have been gripped by the gospel of grace. Until the gospel of grace has so fully gripped you, you will never go. I'll never be able to motivate you to go. I'll never be able to twist your arm and guilt you into sharing the Gospel enough until you truly believe that this is the only hope your friends, your family, and your neighbors have. If you will believe that the gospel of grace is the only message that they need to hear. And it's the only message that's on your lips. It's the only thing that defines who you are. When the, gate, when the nature of God is big in your heart, and the kingdom of God is before your eyes, no one will be able to shut you up about Jesus. Friends, that's what compelled Paul. I want to conclude with this passage. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. What kept Paul going, what kept the early church going, wasn't some sort of motivational speech from Paul, but it was the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Because He had died for them, they were ready to die for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give praise and glory to You in Christ. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. You have saved sinners like us. May we come to know and share this message with those around us. May we truly praise you and glorify you in our lives. Father, I pray that you would stir up this this people, this gathering of your, your bride, that we would take the gospel to those around us and to the nations for your glory. I pray that you would stir our hearts so much by the gospel, change us and transform us so much that, Lord, that is all we can talk about. About the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give you glory and praise. Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to gather together and to share the Lord's Supper. And as our ushers begin to get things ready, I I just want to call our attention.